Live from the Formosity House. 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 Viva de la Casa del Hello and welcome to Live for the, from the Formosa um, session number two, I guess. Um, we're back at the Formosa Tea House. Uh, I'm, this is Stephen Garrity here. I'm here with Peter Ruckavina and Dan James, and we're gonna do another shot at this live at the Formosa thing. We've taken some sound advice, and um, hopefully things will uh, be a little clearer in terms of recording this time, and there'll be a little less inane banter. Our our audio advice instructions from our friend John Muir at Trent Radio in Peterborough were to lean into the microphone. Uh, we took a little field trip to Radio Shack this morning and tried to find better microphone equipment, but we couldn't find any. So Thank you. Uh, we're using the uh, donated microphone, and we're all gathering around it, but we're in the back room at the Formosa, which has a little less ambient noise and no music in the background, but you'll occasionally hear people bringing us lemon iced teas and the doorbell going off and things like that. But we'll see how this goes and uh, whether we can continue to do this on location. All right. Um, well, I was going to talk a bit about today about um, Firefox and the. Am I supposed to grill you on it? Well, you can grill me if you like. Do you have hard hitting questions? Not really. <laughs> we thought that, given the sort of relative uh, audio chaos, unstructuredness of the last session, we might add some structure to this session. So, we thought we have three people. We don't really want anyone to be the host. So we would rotate the hosting ship and sort of have a topic that we would talk about and see whether that felt natural or not. So along those lines, um, I'll try getting it started. We're with uh, we're going to talk a bit about Firefox. The Firefox browser um, 1.0 preview release came out this week. Uh, there was a bit of confusion. It's not. Firefox 1.0. It's a release leading up to it. The 1.0 will probably come out in the middle of October or something. There was actually a story on news.com that seemed to have that confused, that it might have been the final release, but anyway. Is the is the effort to get a million people to download the preview release, le- release an effort to have a bug check? And just to bring new people over to Firefox and, they, and they, it one of the new features is update notifications. So right, if you've got right, people sorry. using the preview release, when the new releases come out, they can be instantly and easily automatically notified that there's a new version mm-hmm. to download. And that the does it instantly and automatically download the new version or just notify? I think you? it just tells you. <coughs> sorry, but um, yeah, you, you can uh, you can write back for that. Maybe if I can grill you for one more second. Yeah. Just for the benefit of people, like Anne Thurlow was on the phone to me the other day, and she sort of said she... Who's Anne Thurlow, Peter? Anne Thurlow's a friend of mine (laughs) who used to work for the radio, and we were talking about the radio and technology and acronyms and buzzwords, and I've I've written on my blog about people using buzzwords and acronyms overly, although I realize that I'm now doing the name-dropping equivalent of that. Anyway, her question to me was, what is Mozilla? And I realized that I knew what Mozilla was, and I had for, you know, six years, but not everyone does. So I will ask you, what is Firefox? Well, Firefox is a an open source web browser that runs on Windows, Linux, and Mac. And it's basically it comes from the Mozilla project. And I realize that this comes out of people not knowing what Mozilla was, but it is a it's basically a faster, simpler, better, easier web browser. Created not by a company, but by a loosely affiliated group of 
computer programmers and designers? Yeah, many of whom are former Netscape engineers because Netscape started the Mozilla Open Source Project and, and funded it for a while. And actually now they're still running on some funding from AOL who had bought Netscape. and then um, So Firefox is it's free web browser that um, is worked on by volunteer developers. So you could use it on your own computer for free instead of Internet Explorer or Netscape. Yes. And, well, that sort of leads into some of the new features in the latest version, which, um, some of which are quite nice improvements over Inter Internet Explorer, including um, pop-up blocking. And you also don't run into, this isn't a problem for Mac or Linux users, but on Windows, um, spyware, anyone who has like a Windows XP at home has probably run into like weird behavior. This happens to my parents all the time and like pop-ups from nowhere and bookmarks you never added and things on your start menu that you never asked for. And using Firefox can prevent a lot of that because a lot of that gets onto your computer through vulnerabilities. I think a lot of people assume, like I've, I've sat down with people whose computers are just heavily drenched in that, and they just assume that's the way the web is. Yeah. Like they've yeah. never known any better. Well, hopefully the service pack, service pack 2 to window, uh, Windows XP um, will improve some of that, because it does have some improvements in terms of keeping spyware up. Anyone who has Windows XP connected to the Internet should eventually get that through their automatic... Updates. Now, isn't that just a... Uh, I guess a symptom of being popular. So if Firefox was to overtake Internet Explorer in popularity, would it not eventually have similar problems? Not necessarily the same problems. there are fundamental design differences, aren't there? There, that is a factor. The popularity mm -hmm. and Firefox will run into this, I'm sure. But there are engineering advantages that they have, like mm -hmm. the fact that Internet Explorer, um, the the whole ActiveX technology thing, which is like lets you run a program in your web browser that like inherently creates security issues that that you just don't run into with another web browser. And how did you, um, I guess, what got you so interested in Firefox? Thank you. Um, Thanks. And, and what's your role in the project officially? Well, I was interested in Firefox because it started to become a better browser and it was starting to become really good and I started using it, but it had these really ugly icons. And didn't it used to have, what was its first icon? Like just a piece of fire? It was like a, yeah, a badly rendered little flame. Or did it, it never had the big blue M icon? That was just Mozilla. Classic Mozilla, Mozilla had that, yeah. And uh, we, so I wanted to see if we could get a better icon in for it. So, and I wrote an article about this on my weblog and got some attention from some of the Mozilla guys about it. And they contacted me and said, okay, will you help us with this? And I went and, uh, and found a group of volunteers, and including John Hicks, who's an illustrator, who helped us draw the what is now the icon for Firefox and the companion email program, Thunderbird. That's, that whole, what you've just compressed into a minute, is actually quite a interesting tale of the nature of the Firefox project. And also of open source software yeah. in general. Because you're not... Before this point, you had no relationship with Mozilla or Netscape nope. or web browsers nope. or anything. You were just a guy. And as someone who doesn't really have much... You're just a guy looking at a girl. <laughs> not a girl, sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm Spike. I'm not a the, uh, as, uh, as someone who didn't have a lot of programming skill, I sort of was felt unable to contribute to a lot of these open source applications that I was using. But I've found now that there's lots that you can do you don't necessarily have to write code. 
and it happens that I was able to help with icons. And There's not really anything analogous to that in the non-technology world. I mean, it's sort of like a cooperative, but it's not that formal in many ways. Well, I mean, maybe it's formal in different ways, but there's well, not really anything analogous to one's day-to-day -day life in Charlottetown where one sort of, of one's own volition, participates in a project. It's like a commons, like that, that anyone could, like, you know, if I was a gardener and I helped out with the commons, then I would do that. I am not a gardener. <laughs> and I do not help out with the commons. Right. Because I'm busy on the internet. Drawing icons. Doing stuff that doesn't matter. That's right. Um, I'm looking at my list of other things about Firefox. Anyway, the new version basically has a bunch of nice polish to it. It's just getting better and smaller and slicker and faster. And, um, is there any sense that any of the, like, do you get feedback or is there discussion by at the developer level about whether the new features are bloating it or are they all, is there sort of a design philosophy that... There's a, there's a small group of, uh, of developers um, that are sort of at the helm of Firefox that say yes or no to whatever gets in. And they're pretty brutal about cutting things and and about what gets let in. Like they, they've, There have been things that have been sort of axed that caused a fair amount of, well, small teapot, uh, Tempest in a teapot, but little controversies among de software developers. And it's still, uh, I mean, the Windows version right now with the installer is like four point something megabytes to download, which is very small relatively like that. That's something that you could feasibly download on a modem. So how many people roughly use Firefox now as their daily browser? I don't know. Um, like, but it's in the millions. millions. Like yeah. th there's this new sort of community promotion website that's been set up called spreadfirefox.com. They have a little promo going that they want to get a million downloads in 10 days. And in the first day and a half, there were over 300,000 downloads. Now, what you can take from that, I don't know. Like, certain that that doesn't probably equal 300,000 people using the browser. Somebody probably started downloading and then downloaded again later. Or someone who had already been using it before reformatted their computer. Exactly. But yeah. it's not five people downloading it. No, there's, there's clearly there's clearly an enormous interest, and it's and it's been growing significantly. And that's something else I was going to talk about was the the usage pattern, like. Internet Explorer is still used by like over 90% of the people that are on browsing the web. But among um, developers, like software developers and web developers, Firefox is really starting to take off and like starting to break into the double digit percentages. Yeah, I've been using it as my web browser for, well, about since the time you started to get involved, whenever that was. Yeah, that was like last fall. Because the, the challenge for a web designer is you need to have a browser that is going to work as much like all the other web browsers as possible, so you don't have to sort of be running ten web browsers on your desktop, although often you still are forced to do that anyway, at least at the end. But uh, Firefox just got to the point where it was like the best browser from mm -hmm. that perspective. If something worked in Firefox, it was probably going to work elsewhere. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does a good job of rendering code, and that's based on all, all of the... Mozilla engineering work that went on. Um, the uh, I heard someone talk about recently about the Apple usage percentage of people using Apple computers, which is like I don't know, I think like what, like three or four percent of total PC users, maybe. And it, don't quote me on that, but but someone made the point that 
it's really that's not a very helpful figure because the people using Apple computers are much more likely to be producing content, creating software, yeah, developing true. things, whereas a lot of that 97% that are using Windows are like or the HR manager at it's the difference between giant comparing like recording studio usage to home video camera usage yeah, or yeah, something like, like that. Yeah. The people using it are doing a lot more with it. And I think that's true with the Firefox usage. You still only have a small percentage of people using it, but the people that are doing a lot of the online shopping, spending the most time online other than just, you know, they're going to work and having And web developers too, which are yeah. people who are going to be building the next website. Well, it's interesting because my mother switched from PC to Mac last year and was using Internet Explorer because that's what came installed as the default browser at that point. And she switched very quickly at my uh, suggestion to Safari and quite like Safari. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're a Mac user and you're still using Internet Explorer, if you're running OS X, you should stop because it's just, it's a bad browser in almost every way. I mean, it's slow, and it, it won't work a lot with a lot of other websites, and it's just not something to use. But, you know, you can use Safari. I find Firefox faster than Safari, which yeah. is why I use it. They're both very good browsers, mm -hmm. though. And if you're right, if you're on Mac OS X, then you should definitely be using one of the two. Is that, am I correct in thinking you can't run Firefox on OS 9? Actually, I'm not even sure. I think there are, of the classic Mozilla browser, there's like a small community group that still does builds of an older version for Mac Classic. But I don't think it's it's one of the like daily builds for for Firefox. So what are some of the exciting new features? All right, exciting new features. Um, there's a new Find toolbar. With, like when you do Control F, or if you go to the Edit menu and choose Find, to search for a word in a page, not like a Google search, but on a particular page that you're already on. Instead of that little Find window popping up, I'm drawing with my hand here, like people can see it with my chopsticks. You need a laser pointer. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, there's a little bar that sort of pops up at the bottom of the browser down near the bottom of the window. And it's uh, it, it's sort of a, like a live search. Like as you type, it jumps to the space in the page that shows you know, what the, has the word you're looking for. And there's nice uh, like previous and back buttons and that you can highlight all that word, all the words that you've searched for on that page. And just some, I mean, they sound like little improvements, but really they are. They're, they're not adding any major new features anymore. They're just small refinements. Right. Um, there's, a, there's some, RSS support, um, which is, um, I don't know if I can define RSS in two sentences. It's, uh, you can now add, if you if you use a, a news or RSS reader, like NetNewsWire or something like that to read weblogs, you can now add bookmarks in Firefox that will pull in the latest articles from that site using RSS feeds. If you go to my weblog, reinvented.net, and search for why is RSS important or just RSS, you can understand why about why RSS is important. Yeah, that's true. And also Mozilla.org, uh, the Firefox page has a uh, um, has a new. They call they're calling it Live Bookmarks. Their little RSS feature, and uh, they have a little page about what are they and why. Well, are so they this important. is the lot. The uh, RSS Live Bookmarks thing is part of Mozilla too. It's no, just it's part of Firefox. Oh, okay. Uh, on the Mozilla.org Firefox page. Um, it's interesting, actually. There was a debate when they added this feature, what to call it, and they, it was called in the development version for a while "Live Marks," like all one word. And sort of, they threw some email around. They were wondering what to call this. Should they use the word RSS right. because it also supports other variations like Atom? And they figured that since Apple was using the word RSS in the upcoming version of Safari, that it was probably going to really catch on. 
Didn't Apple put RSS in the name of the next version? They did, like Safari yeah. RSS. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, ours, if you want to pronounce it. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I Im- immediately comes to mind, if you sort of scrape out the technology part of it, is if I, I don't think we're quite at the, like, I'll do this with my mother yet, but if I have a list of bookmarks to, like, family genealogy sites on my browser, and I want them to be able to be on her browser, too, up until this point, like, I can send her a whole bunch of URLs, and she can add them to her bookmarks, or I could, presumably quite soon, probably even now, if I want to do this weird, delicious bookmarks thing, yeah. I could basically put my bookmarks on the internet, and sh- and whenever I updated them, her browser would update them, and it's sort of like a, it's a shared bookmark. Yeah, the, the, some of the people that... It's almost like they're live bookmarks, in a way. Close. Well, we actually, I suggested live bookmarks over live marks, because... Right. Uh, and several other people had brought this up too because we didn't want to create a new like jargon a new category. No. Um, and live bookmarks was the closest thing to actual plain English that we could come up with. But there was some talk of doing a sort of a promotional campaign for Firefox that would be semi-celebrity shared bookmarks. Oh like right, yeah. Get yeah. celebrity X, like whether it be like a real world celebrity or like a tech celebrity, like Will Pate, like Will Pate, right. yeah, or uh, Will Wheaton. To uh, share their fire, uh, their bookmarks, and have a bit of a campaign built around. See, I'd subscribe to that if Michael J. Fox shared his. his there bookmarks. you go. Yeah. See, I wouldn't. Is there a bookmark <laughs> banning feature? Well, you'd be more into like Kirk Cameron. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or uh, Howard Hessman, Johnny Fever, WKRP in Cincinnati. Oh yes. David Carradine. We should add these. Someone should be writing these down. We should contact these people. Yeah. Um. I noticed, uh, just from a user perspective, that um, the pop-up blocking, like, hey, we've blocked a pop-up window thing, which used to be a little subtle exclamation mark in the bottom left corner, has now changed to a very visible blue bar that almost looks like part of the web page. Mm-hmm. It says something like, we prevented this website from annoying you with a pop-up. Click here to find out more about what we did and to yep. see the annoying pop-ups. Yeah, and that's actually a feature that w- showed up in that type of display in the Service Pack 2 version of Internet Explorer. Oh, okay. And that's so something... So it's just copied from Yeah, that. sort yeah. of copied back from that. Okay. There, the pop-up blocking was already there, but just making it that visible. Right, right. And that is really nice, actually. Um, they did some other nice things along those lines with... Uh, maybe you've noticed this. If you're browsing a secure site, like an SSL encrypted yeah. site, the toolbar, the, like the location bar where the URL is changes color and there's a lock. Oh, is that it changes to yellow. Changes to yellow. I couldn't figure out why it was changing to okay, yellow. Well, that's a bad that usability out. study. Yeah. I noticed the lock. The lock I is the, now right the, up there. The, um, like the RSS or the CSS, no, the SSL. <laughs> the <secure>. Whoa. <laughs> I'm going to go to hell for this. Uh, <laughs> the name of the website, the secure website, is now on the bottom. That's right. So now if you go to a fake PayPal site that's right. actually like Paypal.com, right. and uh, or has some really long, confusing domain, right. and, but and, and, but appears secure. You can see in the bottom what the URL of the cer- secure certificate right. actually is. So that's a, that's a new security feature. And uh, there's a bunch of other like little features, but most of them are. Boring, I would say, like generally as a user, it it just sort of feels more refined. It's like Definitely. it's like. The car company came up with the first model of the car, and now it's the second year, and they've moved the cup holders yep. and just sort of little things that you might not even notice, like um, like Daniel enjoy this. Control A now selects all on Linux, which it didn't before. Like little tiny little things like that. Well, there's things like I noticed it used to be. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there used to be a bug where 
a pop-up window that you actually initiate by clicking on like a thing that's going to pop up a map or something yeah. wouldn't load until the whole page had loaded, and that's I think corrected. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, there's still the the uh, perennial bug that annoys me is on OS 10 uh, when you're doing either expose, which you can get by pressing F11, and shows you all the applications. There's still this little phantom window, uh, and when you cycle through all your open uh, Firefox windows with what command tilde, you still sort of get this window that's there that's not really there. So, but I think that's going to be fixed as far as I can It is. Out. There's there are people working on it right now. And the beauty of the, of the open source application is that you can follow the development on it and see. And add to it. If you yeah. Know. Someone submitted a patch and then they thought they had it fixed, but it turned up another issue, so they had to pull it out for this release. And by the way, I don't think tilde was ever intended to be said out loud. <laughs> okay. That's just wrong. <laughs> Makes me think of Tilda Swinton. But, um, I don't know. That's that's most of what I wanted to talk about for Firefox. It, it'll be the the 1.0 release will be in October, and it's really not that significant. If you're interested in using it, you should just go get it now. Um, but when it's finally at 1.0, hopefully, like educational institutions and large corporations who have been who have been afraid of it so far because it was like in beta and not finished will finally feel that they can go start using it. I just I was just thinking as you said that that uh, it used to be that the province of PEI used like Netscape 2, the one with the really ugly blue end, and they did that because when they bought WordPerfect Office or Novell Office Groupwise or whatever it was, they got like a quote unquote free license to use Netscape. And so they didn't have to like go and buy Netscape for everyone. So they stuck with that version of Netscape for years because of like legal issues. The productivity of our province was held back. It was, it was, yeah. And now, unfortunately, I think there's sort of a mismatch of you know very rare Mozilla usage, but mostly it's Internet Explorer or some people are holding on to Netscape or yeah. you know they've downloaded the new like Netscape six or seven, which I think generally are best bypassed and jumped over to Firefox or the latest Mozilla. If yeah, you, if you use that. Yeah. So. So, is there, I mean, one of the biggest things that left Internet Explorer in front of Netscape um, was that it became the default install in the operating system, which yeah. Microsoft got in trouble for. But, I mean, that jumped it to almost 100% usage um, yeah. across the web. Is there any plans for Firefox or Mozilla to get, I guess, pre-installed on... Like, new talk to Shell or something. Yeah, well, like, can you select Firefox as yeah. an install option at the Dell store? Yeah, obviously... Um, like Microsoft isn't going to do that because they compete with Firefox. But yes, the, having it as the default, as long as Internet Explorer is the default in Windows XP, and Windows XP is the most prominent operating system, Internet Explorer will be used by like millions of people, mm -hmm. like a large percentage. Of I people. mean, it's weird to even the language that we use to talk about this, like Internet Explorer competing with Firefox. Both of them are free. Both of them require Windows, which is a Microsoft product to run. And well, they don't require Windows. I well, mean, no, we but I mean, if, you, if yeah. you are running Windows, right. I mean, you need Windows to, to use them. So it's sort of, you would think in a way, if Firefox could become everything that Internet Explorer was, that Microsoft could just stop developing IE and they'd be happy because they wouldn't have to spend money on yeah, it. Like th yeah, that's, that's talked about. But there are, the thing is that there are issues that there are, Firefox can be used on any operating system. Right, right. And Internet Explorer can only be used on Windows. And well, it's Microsoft also, I think, works. Internet Explorer sort of now from my perspective, sort of is also the Windows File Explorer, like it's yeah. very integrated, yeah. which is not all that useful, yeah. but is sort of... But that's something that's a really good point. Yeah. I hope 
Actually, I don't think there's been a lot of talk about it. I just kind of assumed it would happen. Perhaps I should bring it up. That <laughs> Firefox should... The people, the Firefox people should be talking to Hewlett Packard and Gateway and um, it won't be Apple since they have Safari, but um, well, all the Windows PC developers. And, and then I, I can actually foresee, because of the um, the way the name is catching on and has a good reputation, Dell wanting to put right. Dell, new Dell, with $599 yeah. with, uh, with Firefox and an LCD panel, right. even though it's free, but it just sounds good. And looks good. Yeah. Because it's well, such a great you know, movie. it's interesting because I think, although there's been flirting with this, I think Sun had a system and various other people have tried it. Having a uh, machine which is just like an LCD panel and Firefox, like almost, like maybe it's running Linux underground, but you turn it on and it boots to Firefox, or maybe it boots to Firefox and Thunderbird or something. Mm-hmm. For all the cap sites where there's public internet access or public libraries or whatever. What is a cap site? I don't even want to go there. <laughs> Public internet on PEI, we have these dorky things. Called yeah. Cap now sites. we've been we've been assimilated uh, into calling them cap sites. But if you go to the Atlantic Technology Center or the ATC, you'll see what a cap site is. Yeah. So anyway, Firefox is great, right? I and think it's probably a testament to Firefox and how good the browser is that millions of people have actually gone and downloaded and installed the software. Where you know it takes an initiative to do that. It's right, not just right. like they're booting up their computers and that's the first thing on yeah. it. Where can you get Firefox? Mozilla.org. Actually, the, website. the easier domain is uh, getfirefox.com. Yeah. Or you can buy it on CD at the uh, mozillastore.com. Yeah, that's right. Actually, a little tangent here, but it's interesting. There was a guy who had a personal, his own personal website where he put up, I think it was just like writing and stuff, but he owned the Almost domain. Almost like a blog. Yeah, firefox.com. And he owned it for years, like long before Firefox was ever a browser idea. And, uh, Excuse me, and uh, Mozilla, of course, wanted to get the Mozilla Foundation manages the development of Firefox, so they wanted to get the domain Firefox.com. But um, this guy owned it, and um, he the other day or recently told them that they could have it. Wow. He basically gave it to them. Um, and he's well, way to go, guy. Yeah, Kevin. Kevin's <laughs> his name. Way to go, Kevin. Actually, it's really quite remarkable because he probably could Kevin's the guy of the week. Got Kevin, guy of the week. Yeah. Guy of the week. Yeah. Yes. We should mention maybe for uh, Dave Weiner-like purposes that although you guys do do some work with the Mozilla Foundation, the more people that use Firefox, it doesn't you don't profit from that. Like you're not saying it's good because. And it's key to point out that we're not touting their technologies no. and their program because they happen to be a client of us as well. We were actually they are a client of us because. We touted we, yeah. we, we, we their technologies and got involved. And you're not in building the web browser, you're building the sites that enable people to That's right. learn about Other the Other than browser. some some involvement with the icons and look and feel of the web browser, we're not actually doing any technical um, development on it whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was segment one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> now on to Maybe we should turn up the ambient music for like a nice little segue to the next part here. I'll try and simulate the baseline from the Titanic theme song. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what should we go on to next? I'm reading the list upside down. Oh, Silver Run Stuff. I'm going to grill you about that. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, I guess one, maybe I'll uh, start by saying that uh, I started off in January by uh, participating in the what they call the Google AdSense program on my blog. And what you'll find if you go to reinvented.net, on the front page there's no ads, but if you click on any of the links to individual posts, or if you happen to search on Google and you come in, 
to look at a post through, you know, searching through words that are in the post, and you click on a link that leads you directly to a post. Like um, if you were looking for the, the lead character of the Spider-Man films. Exactly. Tobey Maguire, spelled wrong. Uh, you'll end up at my website, and you will see a Google uh, text ad at the top of the page. And uh, that will be usually a link to something related to the post. So if I'm talking about Air Canada... Sorry, yes. anyone want more drinks? I'll have another lemon iced tea. I'll have a lemon iced tea myself. Three lemon iced tea. Uh, so if I have, this is the way that the Google AdSense program works: is you sign up for the Google AdSense program, and they serve ads on your pages, mostly as much as they can, related to the content of what's on those pages. Mm. So if I write an article about how Air Canada is such a horrible airline, they'll try and sell you Air Canada. No, they'll they'll try and sell you Air Canada. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what happens is that every time someone clicks on one of those ads on my website, I get like. Five cents or eighty cents, depending on how much the advertiser how much the advertiser has said that they're willing to pay Google for that. And basically, Google gets a cut, and I get a cut. And it's mm -hmm. a way of monetizing websites like mine in a way that isn't particularly annoying. Mm -hmm. uh, and the irony in, in the case of my website is most of the traffic that I get uh, comes most of the traffic that I get to individual posts is from people searching in Google. Mm -hmm. So and Google. Brings the traffic, brings and the traffic, and then for they often don't find what they're looking for because I'll have written, you know, I have a post that is like about Chinese restaurants, but it's Chinese restaurants in Charlottetown, and they're mm -hmm. in San Francisco, but there just happens to be like a restaurants.com ad, so look, click on that. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of like a way station, like a hub in the airline industry mm -hmm. that is doing that. And your regular readership keeps up to date on your articles. Yeah, there's so no ads in the RSS feed and there's no ads on the home page, so I'm not really annoying my regular readers. So you're really just capitalizing on random net servers who yeah, are... Yeah, and I'm earning like $150 US a month on average, and that's enough to pay for the bandwidth bill and to keep the server upgraded, and you know it's never going to put food in my... You realize you're going to be assassinated by Google for saying that. Well, I'm not talking about click-through rates or anything. I'm just talking about... I thought you weren't allowed to talk about how much you, you make. I don't know. Well, no, I think you're not allowed to write about it on a Google searchable way on your website. <laughs> Although listeners are free to do that. His name is Peter Rucavina. <laughs> he lives name. at 100 Prince Street in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Thank you, Dan. Now murderers anyway, are going to be able to find The reason I say all that is because uh, Dan's going to say a little bit about the Silver Orange Stuff website, which is which includes Google AdSense ads as a component, but there's much more to it than that. So maybe you can tell us what what's the address and what is it. Um, the Silver Orange Stuff site is a compilation of reviews by the employees and owners of Silver Orange. And we've basically put together a blog-style site where if we have owned something for a while or if we have a new product that we really like and want to tout, we can write about it, review it, and post it on our site. And it's really impersonal, or sorry, it's really personal experience and, you know, not professional reviews. They're just, here's my experience with the product. You can you take it or leave it. I, I wouldn't know how to characterize this. Would you say generally, though, you tend to write about things that you like, not about things that you don't like? Well, we just tend not to buy things we don't like. Right. But, I mean, if you bought a cell phone and it didn't work, you probably wouldn't review it because you don't want to draw the world's attention to it. Uh, no, sometimes uh, uh, Daniel wrote a review of a cell phone that he, like, isn't too happy with. Right. The, uh, Although usually the things that if you're motivated to write a, mm -hmm. write a review, it's because you have something that you think works really well and you'd like to share that with other people. Mm -hmm. Although if I buy something that really sucks and I want to mm -hmm. make sure nobody else wastes their money on it, I will write a review about it. And the address of the site is uh, http full colon forward slash forward slash um, stuff.silverorange.com. And it's actually 
it's a very insightful way to look at the people of Silver Orange to see what kind of things that they review. I mean, we have everything from mountain bike tires to robotic vacuums uh, reviewed well, on the site. One of the things we, we talked about yesterday at lunch of the Formosa Diaz, which we didn't uh, record, <laughs> is... Which uh, is why it was interesting. It's the fact that, that stuff that's silverorange.com is sort of relies upon the existence of your own personal weblogs for some of its authority or reputation. Our, our street cred comes from our weblogs, definitely, and all of our weblogs automatically link to all the reviews that we've posted. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So that like in the sidebar? Yeah. yeah. So it says recent reviews, and it'll have that person's recent reviews, not all the reviews. Um, it's kind of neat, though, having a review site. If, if we do a review of a product that we'd like, um, yesterday, for instance, I reviewed uh, the Bear Vault, which is a bear food canister. Um, Bear as in B E A R. Yeah, like as a in grizzly bear. Yeah, as in like a black like bear. bananas without. It's not grizzly bear proof. It's bear black bear. Proof. Oh, sorry. Yeah, hasn't been tested on grizzly bear. Anyway, so I wrote a review, and it's actually a favorable, a favorable review. And I emailed the company and said our review site has posted this review, and because it's a review site and not a personal blog, they put it under their reviews section. So it's kind of it's actually quite amusing where it's, it's like consumer reports. And yeah, uh, it's like Consumer Digest, uh, you know, Backpacking.com, and the Silver Orange Stuff site. And that's happened three or four times with the reviews that that we've written, uh, and that just adds credibility again to the site. Well, it's interesting because I think that that whole notion that there's a weblog that it, I guess I assume on the Silver Orange Stuff site your name or something is highlighted mm -hmm. that it takes you to something that it takes you to a uh, profile page right. on the Stuff site that then has a link to our I tend to like in Travelocity if you were looking for hotels in Travelocity mm -hmm. they often have customer reviews mm -hmm. and sometimes I find myself I'll book the hotel even if there are negative reviews because it's almost sort of like some real person who can type has been there and they're still alive, so the hotel can't be that bad. But I had I no thought way you only stayed in like expensive boutique <laughs> hotels. The nine zero in Boston. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. But I have no way of establishing the reputation of that person. Um, so it could be like a good review could be just you know the concierge of the hotel. There's mm -hmm. no, no no way to prevent that. And but on the Silver Orange Stuff site, you're sort of you're using blogs to mm -hmm. provide more. I mean, you could make up a whole blog, I suppose, but you did. Right. Like so it's that. it's useful to people who know us to our web blogs, and mm -hmm. it also even to people who don't, they're more likely to find it because our web blogs have relatively prominent Google right. page rank, Google juice, and that spills over since we link to the and stuff site. As much as you you don't like to refer to the thing that is Silver Orange. The fact that Silver Orange can be sort of used as a network to go from the Bear Vault review to the Toyota Echo review, mm -hmm. there's some common. Like if I if I read and admire your Bear Vault review, then mm -hmm. I might like Stephen's Toyota Echo review. Thank you. In the same way. Right. Thanks. And you might not like it too, but that's just showing yeah. the different personalities of Silver Orange. Yeah, it is kind yeah. of a neat. Yeah, like Dan said, it's like you can look and see. Like, what of the people at our, the company we work at buying and liking and not liking and reviewing? Now, if you, like, there are um, Thank you. things which I haven't paid particular attention to, but I know are out there, sort of on the radar. There is, like, a review space. I can say With that. lots of players. <laughs> With lots of players in it. But, um, and the, the notion that, you know, in the way that Amazon aggregates reviews, sort of in a centralized sort of way, about books, which is useful. Yeah. Uh, the, the problem again with Amazon is that there's not. I guess they do have some reputation-like mm. system in there, but internally, yeah. yeah. But if you were to participate, like let's say I had a reinvented stuff website, mm -hmm. uh, we sue you. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if we aggregated those together, like it sort of dilutes. 
it would dilute. Like maybe if I did it, it wouldn't mm. dilute it. But like if everyone in Charlottetown, you aggregated all the reviews together, well, you don't really. You've sort of lost the benefit of reputation somehow. We have. No, the, the, the yeah. system would the not system, be yeah. as, as. Well, that's it's true. There are when we were creating the site, we kind of wondered. Should uh, why wouldn't we just post our reviews on like epinions.com, which is a site built just for this, and it's actually a really good site. It's pretty well done, and I've used it before, and it's useful. But it's uh, I find that more interesting things are happening in personal web spaces like weblogs that are happening on on big you know websites designed for it like that. So I thought you know if I'm going to review a concert YouTube concert DVD that I bought. If I posted it on the ePinion site, um, I think it would just get lost in the noise, and a few people would find it through searching through the ePinion site. But by posting it on this Silver Orange Stuff site, there's a group of people that already read our weblogs, know who our company is, are interested in it, that will find it and and hopefully find it interesting and useful. And then also because of our, with Google as the sort of command line operating system, because the page rank of these of all of our weblog linked together, plus all of the product sites linking back to that's our right. Products. There are some some of our a lot of our reviews now. If you search for, I wrote a review of a, my Toyota Echo hatchback. If you search for Echo hatchback, um, I'm like in the top three or four. Are you higher than Toyota. Um, if you search for Echo hatchback review, I'm number right, one. Right. Yeah. If you search for a product name plus the word review, we're usually in the top right. three. Yeah. Now. Something that just comes to mind as we're talking is that there are sort of very there's there's weblogs and RSS feeds which are something. There's the notion of sharing reviews somehow, and then there is FOF, which is something maybe we won't go into today, but it's basically a standard which allows you to, in a special structured format, define who the people in your social network are. Let's say. Yeah. Presumably, at some point in the future, if I'm looking for a guitar amp and I want to find a review of a guitar amp by someone I know or someone who knows someone I know, yeah. all that could sort of merge together, and mm -hmm. that's sort of the open reviews yeah. system. That's mm -hmm. what you do in, in real life. If yeah. you did want a guitar amp, you'd think, that's Stephen Gary knows his shit. Right. You call me. See, because I think one thing that Ben Hammersley did when this whole... 902-393-0310. Yep, Fender Hot Rod DeVille for sale, $800. My brother Johnny has a 1996 Chevy Blazer for sale. We'll post more details on my website. I'm looking for a house in Charlottetown <laughs> <laughs> between the price range of one hundred dollars and $125,000. But one of the things when this whole faux thing came out, uh, Ben Hammersley, who's a, a journalist and writer now living in Florence, he took his Apple address book and basically assumed that he knew everyone in the address book, so converted it all into a faux file. And one of the nice things about a faux file is that it, it basically puts the email address into a form which it cannot then be extracted from. It's, it's like a one-way encryption. So you can take from an email address, you can find out if you're in someone's faux file, but the other way around doesn't apply. If we all did that, because basically I would probably trust the people in my address book more than I would a member of the general public. Maybe that's Unless you've written letters to people criticizing. Well, yeah, but, but then the same is true for things like um, spam filtering. Anyone who, if you took everyone from yes. your address book and then everyone in that those people's address book and go out maybe three levels, mm -hmm. you'd have thousands of people, and you could say mm -hmm. any email from these people probably isn't spam. Right, right. Now the 
the way that for something like that to catch on is it has to be transparent. Like people, everyone using Outlook. No one's going to like go to their address book and export as both and FTP upload exactly. it to a place. Yeah. But if everyone's using um, Gmail or something, right. Gmail could give you a little checkbox that says share your contacts. I guess that is the... And they probably have <coughs> had them all because of Gmail invitations. Yeah, but I don't want to live in a world where everyone's using Gmail. So it does have to be more open and more... Well, ho- but hopefully um, implementations of like things like could happen like RSS and other exactly so many it, like um, Apple's Mail and and uh, Contact Manager that a lot of people are using that a lot of people are using Outlook a lot of people are using Thunderbird from Mozilla if those all started sharing things like that so does the silver orange stuff website make you any money uh, it does um, an unspecified an amount. unspecified amount and it's it's interesting every review we add the daily income goes up a little bit. Right. Um, so you think, well, why don't you write reviews nonstop? Um, it's not that much money. Um, and also, um, the value of the reviews comes from the fact that we only write about things that we think we have something particularly yeah, valuable to right. say about. Yeah, we're not reviewing products for the pure pleasure of reviewing products. I think, just off the top of your head, if you were uh, an interesting person with lots to say, like so you you could you were basically a raw content generator. Do you think you could make a living from Google AdSense by just maintaining a bunch of websites? And they'd have to be very good websites. Yeah. If you live like if that's all maybe you in a tent and <laughs> and uh, sustained off the things in the woods and only Sierra had to designs meteor light tent. It's yeah, nice. good stuff. We can keep your food in a bear vault, of course. Um, the in terms of the amount of money we make on it, it's uh, it's like it's not insignificant. Like, what's a we can give a ballpark? Our figure. goal is to buy lunch every day, yeah, for a number of people in the company. Yeah, yeah. And right now, I would say I'm buying lunch for myself, one out of every two days. Right. Yeah, so. yeah. But it's it's funny how you know when we put up blogs. Um, Steve and I both have a blog, um, and a few other people in our company have blogs. We our business would actually get get traffic from those blogs. People would say, hey, I saw your article on Firefox and, you know, I came to your business website and I think it's interesting and can you work on this project, this, that, and the other thing. Here's a, a the stuff site's ahead. actually starting to do that. We had right. an email the other day from someone who read our generator review and he said, I wonder what these guys do and then he backtracked to Silver Orange and called us and was interested in our, our intranet product. So. I had a weird call from a guy in Summerside yesterday who called wanting to know about the 1010 Yak phone service. Oh, wow. And I gather just sort of by doing a little forensic Googling that he went to Google and searched for Yak long-distance PEI. And I just happened to write about this, so my weblog post was the first search result. He clicked on it, didn't read <coughs> the post, clicked on Contact Us, assuming I was the... The official spokesman, yak, yeah. And said, I have some questions about the 1010 Yak. You were recommended to me by a friend or something. Well, uh, a bit of a tangent uh, on that. I think I got one of the weirdest emails I've gotten based on oh, my web blog recently. And I get some weird ones. I wrote Because he's so famous. Yeah, I wrote it on Axe of Volition, my web blog, a little while ago about, like, I think maybe a good two years ago, maybe, about a the idea of a microwave freezer. And I'm just sort of talking out of my ass, but the idea would be you have a... A, uh, a microwave that could freeze things, and I don't know. I don't so it's know. like a reverse microwave. It's a reverse microwave, and it's like my stupid invention that I have no idea how it works. It's like Flubber. Yeah, <laughs> it's a whole lot <laughs> like Flubber. And in the movie about it, Robin Williams will play me. Um, 
And I got an email the other day from this guy. Tony Danza. I don't look like at all like Tony Danza. One of the members of Hanson, I would say. Will Wheaton will pay me. You can go on. Um, I'd like to talk more about who's going to play me in the movie. Um, uh, Anyway, this guy emailed me and said, uh, saw your uh, post about the microwave freezer. I think it's a really promising product. Um, Would I be able to uh, invest some money to help you get it off the ground? And, like, my post was pretty clearly, I thought, like, me talking, like I said, out of my ass about a thing I have no idea about. This well, guy I'm was ready to make yeah. an investment in my I, The thing is that I don't think, I think we overestimate the degree to which sarcasm travels well, both sort of cross-border and outside of our close circle of friends. Yeah. Um, the post I think of is the post I uh, made about my brother Mike becoming a new cast member on a new version of Danger Bay. And I had many people sort of asking where they could get the DVDs to this new version of Danger Bay. So it's it's remarkable to me the degree to which people do not read. And well, and just for the record, I fell for that. Oh, you did? Wow. I totally did. That's there was a new Beachcombers remake coming on. I don't know. All sarcasm is a little bit real. Beachcombers, Danger Bay, whatever. Yeah. Okay, well, we got a little more time. I um, want to move on to... Segment three. Dun, dun, dun. Well, Peter. Oh, it's a, sorry. Steve, you're supposed to grill Peter on this. Oh, uh, you can help me. Um, Peter is a phone... Addict? Dork. <laughs> phone dork. <laughs> um, voice over IP stuff, and uh, he's always playing with... Uh, if you phone his company line, actually, a robot will answer the phone, and direct you to various options. and uh, Often the phone system, not often, but sometimes the phone system will crash or I'll be recompiling the phone system and Johnny wants to phone home. Johnny's my brother who works with me in the office and so he'll pick up the phone. There's no dial tone and he'll yell well, through the office, Pete, are you screwing with the phone system? <laughs> the fact that and they do have a robot to answer the phone for a two-person office. Yeah, and the fact that you just said uh, that you recompile your phone system, <laughs> I think it really sums things up. But... Hopefully you can tell us a bit about, first of all, why you're interested in that and a bit about what you've done with it for yourself and what you'd like to do with it. Well, I, I have always been, since I was able to have my own telephone line in my bedroom at home, uh, a phone dork. Before or after you taught gymnastics. <laughs> would be during my gymnastics teaching time, okay. of which I am quite proud. Uh, and... The notion that, you know, you have a phone, which is a little bit of hardware that you buy or you used to rent from the phone company, you plug that into the wall, and you're limited to basically doing what the phone can do. It's always sort of been frustrating to me. Uh, on the other end of that spectrum, you know, you have large, expensive PBX systems that, you know, places like governments or schools or places Or Silver like Orange. Or Silver Orange, <laughs> that's right. You accidentally have one, I should yeah, It came with the building. Yeah, but, uh, and those are, you know, proprietary pieces of hardware that you have some configuration over. Like, you can decide that when the phone rings, it rings on Kelly's desk, not your desk, and that sort of thing. But you can't have a robot answer the phone. <laughs> And so I'd sort of, you know, that'd been a latent interest of mine, and I hadn't really done much about it other than buy, you know, miles and miles worth of phone cord and lots of antique phones, which drives my partner Catherine insane. But anyway, about a year ago, a uh, probably about two years ago, a piece of hardware and a piece of software uh, showed up on my radar screen, 
and you have a radar screen. I have a radar screen that tracks products <laughs> and virtuals. And uh, the har- piece of hardware comes from a company in somewhere in I think it's Alabama or Georgia called Digium, and it's basically a card that you pop into the back of a PC, and it has a phone jack in it. So you have you take your normal regular Alliant or Eastlink phone plug and you plug it into the back of your PC. Or Bell. Or, or Bell or anyone, yeah. yeah. It's just a normal RJ11 phone jack that you would have in your house. So you plug that into the phone. Then you run a piece of software, and this is on a Linux web server, although you can also do this on, I don't know if you can do it under Windows, you can do it under Mac OS X, uh, called Asterisk, which is like Firefox, an open source piece of software. And you can sort of think about Asterisk, uh, asterisk which is hard to say because I've never said it out loud before, uh, as a sort of virtual or uh, digital soft PDX. So it sort of replaces that big thing in the telephone closet with a computer program that's running. And it acts as sort of a phone switch that you can configure and screw around with yourself. So you can say that when the phone rings, you want it to take a message, and, or you want it to play this wave file that you've recorded on your computer, or you want it to transfer the call to your voice, voice over IP line, which will find you at your hotel in Hong Kong. Uh, can I interject quickly here? The, when you say you can tell it to do this, yes. What, like, by what mechanism do you make these configuration changes? There are just a bunch of text files that you edit in a ASCII text editor. Right. You know, so anything from Notepad on up, I yes. guess. And you basically create that. The fundamental backbone of the system is something called a dial plan. So it's basically just a bunch of if-then statements. If the phone rings and this is true, you know, if they press two, then ring the phone in Johnny's office. Uh, it's not at the point-and-click graphical user interface Firefox level by any means. Like this is something that you have to be a phone dork to understand sure. or put up with. Uh, the other aspect of this, and I, I alluded to this, is. Uh, there is now a growing voice over IP industry, which is basically using, instead of using the phone network, you use the internet. So, you know, your broadband internet running in your house or your internet in the office as the vehicle by which your telephone conversations are carried. And that can involve point-to-point, so two people who have software, soft telephones running on their computer using the internet for the entire call. So Skype would be an example. Skype would be, or iChat, uh, AV would be another example Mm -hmm. of that. Or it can involve using the internet for part of the call and then the rest of the call happening on the regular telephone network. So to give you an example of this, uh, I use a service called Voice Pulse Connect, which allows me to... What is it, sorry? Voice Pulse Connect. Okay. Voice Pulse is, if, you, if you're familiar with sort of the <coughs> consumer voice over IP, like you can buy a box and get yeah. cheap long distance calling, it's a competitor of Vonage and Packet8 and all, all right. these other companies. Uh, Voice Pulse Connect is specifically designed for the phone dork in that you don't get a box and support and it basically allows you to have a virtual telephone number in any one of a whole bunch of area codes in the United States. So I have a client in southern New Hampshire and I can get a telephone number in their community, which is a local telephone number that they can dial. And what that does is it rings, you know, they're just using a normal phone, they're not using any software or anything. So they pick up the phone and dial a local phone number. And because I have a Voice Pulse Connect account and it knows where my asterisk server is, it basically comes into my asterisk virtual PBX just like a normal telephone call from the phone yeah. network does. And they hear press one for this, press two for this, press three for this, and just like speak to you. Just so, so that call goes from the, uh, the phone in New Hampshire to the local, the local number that you have in New Hampshire. 
from there, it over the internet. magically go, it gets onto the internet and goes to really wherever you want. But in your case, it comes here to Charlottetown. It would, yeah, it would go. I mean, in my situation, it would come here to Charlottetown to my server, and then my software takes over and puts it anywhere it wants. Okay. So does it make your phone ring? It can if I want. Um, and that's the, that's the beauty of it. I can have it do anything. It's like being able to do with telephone calls what you can do in a word processor with words. You mm -hmm. can route it through rules to anywhere you want. Mm -hmm. Now the third component of this is a little box that I have in my office on my desk which allows me to plug a regular phone into a little box. In my case it's called a Sapura SPA2000 <laughs> which sounds very impressive. It costs about $100 and it's basically got a phone jack and an ethernet jack. So it's a little device which basically itself connects to my asterisk box and it's like a virtual extension. Mm. Now I could take that out of my office and plug it into the internet anywhere in the world and it's, there's absolutely no difference to it. So if I move to Hong Kong tomorrow and you happen to phone my local number here in Charlottetown, you would press 1 to speak to Peter and it would just be that my phone would happen to be ringing in Hong Kong rather than wherever I happen to be in my office. So, so is this an emerging set of tools working together or is this something that's been around for the last 10 years? And, and There's a couple of things at play. There's the open source software, the Astra software, which is revolutionary. There's been, uh, you know, Cisco has voice over IP products mm -hmm. that you can buy, whether the software or hardware, a combination of it, but that's out of the reach of regular normal people. Dorks. Yeah, and it's mostly in the realm of, you know, maybe UPI would buy a Cisco phone system, which would be, as far as they're concerned, really little different from the phone system they mm -hmm. have otherwise. Uh, so there's that open source, there's the low-cost hardware, like the Digium little board that I plug my phone line into, cost me 150 US. You can now get clones which are identical to it for like 1995 US. Mm -hmm. So there's that cheap hardware thing. And then this is all built upon, very much like the web and browsers are built upon the web protocols. This is built upon a protocol called SIP, another protocol called AIX, all of which are just ways which voice is transmitted over the internet. Right. And you're also capitalizing on the expansion of the broad yeah, band. Yeah, we couldn't do that. We couldn't do this over dialogue. No. Did you did you see today? I, I I don't know much about it, but in the news that uh, Earthlink released a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing application that uses SIP as I the protocol. I did see that. Yeah. I don't know much more about it than that. But yeah. I mean, all SIP is is a way of taking your voice that in 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 digital format and making it go where you want it to go. So for we have HTTP for sending web pages. And this is SIP to send voice telephone calls. Now, I'm interested in this in sort of, I see two particularly interesting fronts. One is the sort of do-it-yourself geek phone technology where I could set it up and have my answering machine be software-based and then have it email me MP3s of right, the Which is the exactly course, what I have. Which is doing. Yeah. Which would be cool. My email is now my voicemail. Yeah. So. And that's, and I think that's really neat. And then you can check it from anywhere. And, um, and then I think on the other, sort of the other end of the spectrum is when you mentioned having a box that you can plug a normal phone into. I think where there's a lot of potential for this to be a disruptive technology is where mom and pop can go to Future Shop and buy a voice over IP phone plug it into their, I don't know what they do, plug it into their DSL router or something, yeah. but have it look like the phone that they have now and yeah. pick up and dial numbers. And that's basically... Use 802.11. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Like a Wi-Fi wireless phone. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, in the States, like with Vonage, for example, that's where we're at. Like you can go into Best Buy and buy a Vonage box and account and you take it home, you plug your internet into one side of it, you plug your phone into the other side of it and you pick up and there's a dial tone, like it sort of configures itself and yeah. everything mm -hmm. works. The one, I think, uh, thing that's standing as a little bit of a roadblock there is apparently 
if you don't have a broadband router. So basically, if you don't have a, if it's just your your computer, the cable modem uh, plugged directly into one another, you need like an extra port. So mm -hmm. you need like a wireless router or a little router right. box, yeah. and they'll sell you one of those for like an extra hundred dollars. Yeah. But that's so it's not quite easy because there's like yeah. now four cables to plug sure, in sure. too. Close though, yeah. Yeah, but it really does mean I think I, the, the next. The next thing that's you know, talking about this emerging is going to be: Does the CRTC have anything to do with this? Mm. Uh, Which is for our international listeners. It's like the FCC in the United States, or it's the regulatory. It's a governing know. body that yeah. controls the broadcast mm. and communication. But I mean, just to give you an example of the ways in which I will use this. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to Croatia next month. I have borrowed a cell phone. I have a Croatian. Uh, cell phone account that I was able to get in the sort of pay-as-you-go way for fifty dollars. With very cool packaging. With very cool packaging, <laughs> yes. And the neat thing about that cell phone is that I can accept calls in Croatia for free. They don't cost me by the minute. So what I can do is I can, using the cell phone, I can call my phone system here in Canada for you know probably twenty or thirty cents a minute. Uh, it will recognize my caller ID. I will hang up. It will phone me back. So it's now making a cheap voice over IP phone call to Croatia. I'm getting the call in Croatia for free, and then it will give me a dial tone, and I can call out. I could call my house here in Charlottetown, for example. Ah, uh, okay. Call. So you're calling. You're basically tunneling through your office. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I'm, it's a callback system, very much like a commercial callback system. Yeah, that's cool. myself. Uh, another example is that uh, right now I pay $79 a month for the Island Hell Digital North America cell phone plan, mm -hmm. so I can take my cell phone to New Hampshire, and. I don't want to pay $79 a month anymore. So if I have, again, this borrowed cell phone, I can get a pay-as-you-go account in the U.S., and if I want to call someone locally here, I'll just call my U.S. New Hampshire number, which mm -hmm. will be free because mm -hmm. in the U.S. most cell phone systems are like all calls are local calls yeah. now. And I get a Canadian dial tone, and I can oh, nice. call home, or I can call Croatia for that matter. So maybe we'll do live from the Formosa slash yeah. Croatia. <laughs> I'll find the Formosa tea room in Zagreb. So. so is there? I mean, with the growing number of open Wi-Fi access points, is there going to be the point where you can have a cell phone that is IP-based and use that? Uh, I think using yeah, over like right now you can uh, from Pulver C Communications. Mm -hmm. Pulver Communications runs the Free World Dial-Up system, which was a very early innovation, uh, sort of almost a separate phone network that didn't really interconnect to the normal phone network, sort of like Skype or mm -hmm. iChat IV, AV. And uh, I like the iChat IV. That would be really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> anyway, um, they um, sell at Pulver Communications a, a Wi-Fi voice over IP telephone, which mm -hmm. basically replaces that little box <coughs> in my office. Mm -hmm. And in theory, uh, anywhere that there's Wi-Fi, my phone connects to the internet and identifies itself, so it mm -hmm. registers with my server yeah. and then will ring. Uh, of course, there's not Wi-Fi everywhere. Uh, but there should be. There should be, and apparently be. someone is working on it. I've read scatterlings of people developing sort of cell phones that if there's Wi-Fi, there'll be Wi-Fi phones, otherwise there'll be cell phones. Now, also coming in there is the, the new, is a uh, emerging, uh, yeah, uh, what do you call it, protocol, or um, WiMAX replacing Wi-Fi, which instead of 802.11, which is Wi-Fi, it's 802.16, and it has much more bandwidth and a range of about 50 kilometers as opposed right. to you know one kilometer or half a kilometer. And something like that would start to be a lot more practical in terms of having a phone that switches in from WiMAX back to the normal cell network back and forth. And I guess when you uh, put all of this together, I've got my Wi-Fi phone, I'm walking down the street in San Francisco and I want to find a good Thai restaurant, um, I somehow 
pick up my Wi-Fi phone or maybe it's a Wi-Fi Trio-like device or something. It knows where I am because it's got a GPS receiver built into it and it goes out onto the network and finds the most authoritative review of the most Thai-like restaurant from the people who I know closest. Using FOF. Using FOF and Silver Orange Review Protocol yeah. and directs me to a Thai restaurant. Yeah. Now whether that's useful or important or interesting. It's certainly interesting whether or not it's something we need or whether I should just actually be asking someone on the street where a good time. Yeah. I think location-based um, computing using GPS technology could be a good topic for our next live. Absolutely, yeah. Although, like all of this said, uh, you, this is working for you now. And it, it, us at Silver Orange, we have several people working remotely. Yeah. Right now, we have a guy in Kingston, Ontario, Toronto, Ontario, and Paris, uh, Paris, France. And... Uh, we use Skype now the, to communicate quite a bit. And while I don't know if my mom would want to use it yet because she'd be weirded out by having this in front of the computer, she wants to have the phone. Um, although I know you could get hardware to make that a bit easier. For us, we're sitting in front of the computer anyway. Right. Skype, we put headphones on and we use the microphones built into our laptops, which seem to work well enough. And that keeps our hands free, so you can sit there with your mouse and your keyboard and talk to somebody about something you're working on. The one thing about Skype, which is pretty clear, at least right now, is that it is a, uh, a closed system. It has some benefits because it works sort of in a Kazaa-like way, as far as I understand. But it doesn't, you can't use other, you know, open clients with Skype yet. Yeah. So it's useful, and it's useful mostly right now because it's easy to install. It just works, and I think that's their uh, that's their slogan. Yeah, it's it's very much like when the ICQ instant yeah. messaging program came out. It worked great, but it didn't it didn't work with any other application. Mm -hmm. It's still that's still a problem. Maybe the one final comment I'll make is just in terms of the quality. Uh, you know, there's this program or uh, buzzword or buzz phrase uh, about the value of eating your own dog food, which basically means using your own software and subjecting yourself to its defects. Uh, I sort of made a clearly determined effort back in December to start using VoiceOver IP sort of for my daily business affairs, but also sort of as a eating my dog food, you know, putting up with any defaults so that I would be forced to try and solve them. Yeah. And uh, the voice quality, as asterisks had, asterisk is very hard to say. It's also under active development, and every new version that comes out gets a little more reliable, and the sound quality goes up a little bit. Um, when I started, you know, like I can think of times in the month of January where we would be having conference calls with our clients in New Hampshire where there'd be like little five second dropouts where we wouldn't hear what they were saying mm -hmm. and you'd upgrade the phone system and then that would solve itself. So mm -hmm. it's not quite like, would I recommend that like a bank install an Asquith phone system yet? No. Uh, it's probably even a little dicey for, you know, using for important day to day business if you're not treating it as a research project. But yeah. It's certainly like, you know, in six to nine months, you can see it being ready to install. So cool. You're like a monkey in a satellite, in a uh, ascent into space. There we go. Well, we're <laughs> in one so many ways. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're one minute, uh, one hour and two minutes into this. So With uh, that inappropriate metaphor, let's finish. We'll, uh, we'll be back uh, next week if <laughs> we don't, if nothing intervenes. Yeah. Uh, and do, if you're listening to this somehow and you've got it, pirated on CD from your friend, uh, do visit www.reinvented.net or www.ceoblues.com or, or actsofvolition.com. I like being the, uh, what do you call the word or? It's a preposition? No, it's a simile? It's a <laughs> You're asking the it's wrong people here. I like playing the role. Anyway, uh, visit one of those websites and find our email addresses and let us know what you think of the audio quality, whether it's any better now that we've moved to the back room. And uh, anyway. See you next week. Thank you. Bye.